excited. <clears throat> we are studying Peter's second letter, and in particular, a number of ways in which he calls them and us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are going through very slowly verse 5, where he mentions a number of practical things to add to our faith, namely virtue, knowledge, and today, self-control. Second Peter chapter 1, I'd like to read to you again, starting in verse 1 to get the context even down to verse 9, but the practical uh, study today will be on self-control, strengthening spiritual self-control. Here now, the word of the Lord, starting in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have, uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith, Virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, straying sheep indeed we are. We pray that you would seek your servants. We desire to be so much more to do, so much more. And we confess that uh, there is that other principle at work in us, that law that whenever we would do good, evil is present and hindering us from doing and being what we wish. We know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But may that same Spirit who has led us thus far lead us further and higher May the new measures of strength make us more joyful, productive, and effective in that salvation as it is written here. And may the great and precious promises be fulfilled by the divine power that we may enjoy the divine nature in our Lord Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. Well, the fastest pitch that was ever recorded, ever measured in a Major League Baseball team, uh, game was in 1974, by, anyone know? Yes? Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan, outstanding. Clocked in at an astonishing 108.1 miles per hour in ra with radar. 
Reggie Jackson once said this about him. Nolan Ryan, he said, is the only guy who puts fear in me. Not because he could get me out, but because he could kill me. <laughs> the Ryan Express, as he was called, was known for his speed, but not always for his accuracy. And in his autobiography, he wrote about a certain game that he pitched the uh, district championship in his high school. He writes, I, I was pretty well known for my fastball, but I was wild. It, it worked to my advantage, though, that day. I, I hit the first kid up squarely in the helmet and split it. I hit the next guy in the arm and broke it. The third kid went and begged his coach not to make him hit. <laughs> the coach assaulted him verbally in front of everyone and shamed him into standing there. I had them after that. If, if I didn't walk them, I struck them out because they were up there at the edge of the batter box on their toes, ready to bail out. I, I had no strategy and no finesse. I just kept winging them in there, trying to get as close as possible to the plate. They had forgotten to win the district. They just wanted to go home without any serious injuries. Well, like the high school version of Nolan Ryan, our lack of self-control, it might seem to actually help us for a while. I mean, for example, some, some people um, are, do not control their emotions well. They've learned that an upset or angry temper, perhaps, gives them some short-term gains, and they don't realize the long-term hurt that they are causing to their loved ones. Or others, in another example, they might be giving in to, well, whatever comes along, but like a family without a budget or reserve funds, everything might seem great until the first emergency, and then you face ruin. Well, without self-control, spiritually speaking, we do all face ruin. And this is a very important contemporary subject for us in America, one that we all, of course, will find relevant to ourselves as self-control affects us in so many practical ways. How many know the struggles of managing your time, your money, your development of godly character, controlling your temper or your tongue, overcoming temptation in general? How much we are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, self-control, or the lack thereof, lies at the root of so many other problems in our thoughts and feelings, decisions, and lives. Or am I the only one that feels that way? The sometimes controversial evangelist uh, D.L. Moody was once asked, of all the people you have had to come in contact with, who would you say it is that gives you the most trouble? He said, that's easy, D.L. Moody. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a saying, if you could kick the person responsible for most of your troubles, you wouldn't sit down for weeks. Uh, I think it's probably why pastors stand up to preach. Um, and, uh, and here we are having this study on a Sunday when we are having lunch afterward, right? <laughs> And you say, couldn't we do it some other week? No, I, I just couldn't help myself. We're going to do it. We're going to do it today. So uh, I will begin with the words of the great missionary statesman J. Oswald Sanders in his book on spiritual leadership. He writes, it has well been said that the future is with the disciplined. And that quality is first on our list, for without it, the other gifts, however great, will never reach their maximum potential. Only the disciplined person will rise to his highest powers. He is able to lead 
because he has conquered himself. Well, we do need to lead ourselves first, and the future is with the disciplined. This is a struggle that we all face, a struggle within. It's a struggle that uh, ha- does occur to us in a number of areas of life. I speak specifically, though, about spiritual self-control today. It's called various things in Scripture. It can be translated in various ways, but here it is called self-control. And I'd like to consider today, first, what is it? Second, why have it? And third, how do I grow in it? What is it? Why have it? And how do I grow in it? Our outline for today. First, what is it? Well, for the Christian, it is much more than the Webster's Dictionary definition of restraint exercised over our own impulses, emotions, or desires. Much more. One author well explains, self-control is a trained capacity to think clearly about what matters most. It's a disciplined attentiveness to what God is, has done and is doing. That's what he means, to think about what matters most. Self-control, he writes, is really about paying attention. Before, it's a strength to hold yourself back. It's the ability to see without distortion or illusion what's really going on and the wisdom to act in light of it. The purpose of self-control is to make us holy. Self-control guards a treasure, God's great salvation, and it produces a jewel, God-like holiness. Well, that's perhaps rather an abstract definition, but the more I read through that and thought about it, the more I think that's right on board here. Certainly it's how Peter comes at it. It's not just a matter of controlling your impulses. It's about thinking clearly about what matters most and living in light of that. This is how Peter comes at it. Before Peter tells us to do anything, he reminds us and assures us, verse 3, of this divine power that has been given to us for all things in life and godliness. Remember, then, he goes on to say, what God has promised what God has done, and what God is doing in you. The exceeding great and precious promises, verse 4, so that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. It's the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ where the letter begins in verse 2. It's where we must begin. And our passage does say, do you need to add to to knowledge self-control? So self-control is coming first. So, whereas the point is we might think of self-control as just overruling our emotions, Peter frames it as maintaining a higher goal at all times, okay? Not just restraining your emotions and impulses, but maintaining a higher goal. Because we want to please and honor God, in other words, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the context of this letter. We must go against our feelings at the moment. We need to choose and act and feel what we most would want, everything considered. Not just when one thing is considered, right? You have the donut in front of you. One thing is being considered at that moment, and you have to have the bigger picture in mind. Well, Peter, spiritually, is giving us the much bigger picture. And this is the critical need that we should have the bigger picture in front of us 
when the temptation comes because, as we learn in chapter 2, false teachers have already come into their church promoting immorality, tantalizing, exciting, pleasurable immorality. They have even put rainbow flags in front of the churches. Chapter 2, they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having hearts trained in covetous practices. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, and like animals, they too will perish. He represents those without self-control as being ruled by passions, desires, and carnal instincts to their own destruction. And of course, as we prayed earlier, we recognize that we are susceptible to this lure. We don't do what we want to do, as we prayed earlier. This is the universal experience of fallen man. What is the difference between us and them? Well, brothers and sisters, here you are. And as we talk about self-control, I need to give you this affirmation already. Here you are. God has already made a tremendous difference in your life, in your state by breaking the natural dominion of sin, that dominating power that would keep you from God, and bringing Him to yourself. You see your failures, but what a tremendous difference there is between where you are and where you would be without the Lord. We we look at our failures and self-control. We look at the donut we had. All right, Um, a, a great difference has been introduced into your life by the power of self-control, that guardian of your salvation. You feel your lack of self-control keenly? Well, welcome to the human race. If, if there's something that you are overlooking, then realize the divine power that he speaks about. These prom- promises you have believed that have led you to escape the corruption of the world through lust that he wrote about. You may not have it in you tomorrow to go to the gym. You may say, oh, I'm just so weak. Well, friends, God hasn't promised you great measures of self-control in every area of life. Gym or no gym, he has promised that the God who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's what he's promised. That's what spiritual self-control is about. The gym might have to wait for another week. But the Lord will do his work in you and keep you, and he will keep you through training you to grow in the grace and the fruit of the Spirit called self-control. That's what it is. Let's consider briefly why have it. Why have it? Well, you say, it's pretty obvious, right? Well, let's think about it some more de- a little more deeply. From time to time, I put in the bulletin a quote from Samuel Rutherford uh, that uh, goes like this. As a child cannot hold two apples in his little hand, but the one puts the other out of its place, so neither can we be masters and lords of two loves. And blessed are we if we could make ourselves master of that invaluable treasure, the love of Christ, or rather, allow ourselves to be mastered 
and subdued to Christ's love. So as Christ were our all things and all other things are nothings and the refuse of our delights, end quote. The observation he makes is very simple. Can, you, can, can a little child hold two big apples in his little hand? No, he can only hold one. And similarly, he says, you cannot be maintaining two loves in your hearts. Each one is seeking to displace the other. It, and, and we understand that this is the nature of the struggle. It's not just a struggle for self-control. Christ is urging you to get rid of sin, and sin is urging you to get rid of Christ. And self-control is absolutely essential that we might maintain our hold on the Lord. Jesus says in similar language, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Self-denial and self-control are very, very similar. Uh, The battle is this. Two rival affections are seeking to dominate everyone here. And only one can ultimately prevail. We are seeking not spiritual strength or cross-bearing or victory over sin or a fruitful life, ultimately, although all those things are going to come, I hope. But we're not seeking those things ultimately. We are ultimately seeking a pure and perfect communion of our souls together with the living God. And self-control, by self-control, we are more and more conformed to his heart, his thoughts, his ways, his deeds, guarding this precious communion by this fruit of the Spirit, as Paul calls it elsewhere, self-control. We have Christ more formed in us, the hope of glory. What we are after is a more deep, intimate, constant, fruitful communion. The problem is that our temptations, our sins, are constantly seeking to pull us away from that, from Him, aren't they? That's the problem. Surely you've experienced this in your own Christian life. When are you most liable to temptation and every other misery and doubt? When do you feel that your self-control is weakness? Is it not when your walk with God is weakness? Your love for Him is weakest. This is not a matter over one or two or five areas of besetting sin. This is This is a struggle for our communion with Christ. Peter writes in chapter 1, a great variety of reasons to pursue self-control. He says we need it for all sorts of things, many things. Verse 8, for instance, if these things are yours, you'll be neither unbarren nor unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How how much more productive you'll be as a Christian if you have self-control. Or or, or verse 10, be all the the more diligent to make your calling an election sure. Uh, That is to say, uh, what what assurance can we have when we are constantly falling into grievous uh, sin? Rightly, do we question where we are? Um, He says, if you do these things, you'll never stumble. These are the things that uh, support our Christian life. There's many practical benefits and blessings to strengthening spiritual self-control. But my point is, supremely, self-control and all the benefits of the Christian life are the means of building our relationship with God, drawing closer to Him, understanding Him better, being imitators of God as His dear children, and deepening our love for Him in the sense of nearness. So, uh, it just came to me, I'll 
just mention that uh, we had a wonderful Sunday school last week as uh, we heard about uh, a new ministry, uh, a ministry that is specifically targeted to separate uh, from you those besetting sins. And it does so primarily through Christian discipleship. That is to say, it's primarily a, a discipleship program that brings us to the, closer to the Lord. Uh, this, is, this is on the same line of what I am talking about here. Self-control, or the lack thereof, well, we feel it in this area and that area, but what we often do not realize is the, the bigger picture uh, of the, the more that we, as God's dear children, are living with Him and deepening our love for Him, the more that we are able to overcome. And the opposite is true, Peter tells us in chapter 2. How much worse sinful indulgence will leave you, especially you who have known the truth. I mean, sin's not good for anyone. But when people have known the truth, he says, and then gone back to the sinful indulgence, well, if you'd like to look with me, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it's... It's uh, a shocking condemnation. Not adding self-control to knowledge, that is say, having the knowledge of Christ, without the self-control is described, chapter 2, verse 18 and following. When they, these false teachers, speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty... They themselves are slaves of corruption, for whom a person, uh, for by, wh- by whom a person is overcome, by him he is also brought into bondage. For if they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, the knowledge that we're supposed to add self-control to, if they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow being washed to her wallowing in the mire. So in other words, the last state of that man is worse than the first. If you have the knowledge, it is so important that you then add the self-control and thereby grow in that grace and holiness. Because if you don't, your, worst state, your last state will be worse than the first. That knowledge will be all the more sinking to you. And let me pause here to make an application to parents. Christian parents are very zealous to remove from their homes certain influences which would lead them to have a love for the world. Fair enough. But there is often too little thought given to what should fill the home and the hearts, to what would displace the love for the world that they are seeking to put at a distance with a greater affection. You know, nature abhors a vacuum. And you, as a parent, not only have to worry about what activities you never do, you have to worry about the activities that you are always doing and delighting to do. You have to not only worry about what you take out, You have to worry about what you bring in. So Jesus, in a parable, warns about this unclean spirit being cast out of a man, and then the man becomes like a house who swept clean and put in order, but left empty. 
But then after a time, the spirit decides to go back and finding it empty brings with him seven spirits more wicked. And Jesus says the last state of that man is worse than the first. You simply can't leave a child's heart swept clean, put in order, and left empty. The last state will be worse than the first. The more that 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 aching void is left, the more that the enticing sin will come and fill it up so that the last state is worse than the first. How important is self-control? In summary, adding self-control to knowledge is very useful, very fruitful, very encouraging to us in many ways, but ultimately we must realize it's a means of drawing closer and dearer to our Lord, and it is the guard of our salvation. However, to gain the knowledge of God without self-control, Peter says in chapter 2, is to leave us more wretched and liable to an even greater condemnation. And therefore, we must add to knowledge self-control. This is not only what it is, point one, but why we need it, point two. But the real question that you are wanting to know, and you have been since the moment I started the sermon, is how do I get it? How do I get it? I will say there's a great many approaches to this topic in the Bible. The Bible has a great deal to say about uh, growth and self-control, self-denial, growth in godliness, sanctification, uh, a, a great variety of illustrations and applications and uh, directions for this. Today, I'd like to take what is emphasized in the chapter, promises, power, and plan. Promises, power, and plan. Promises, as Peter puts it, um, the very, for this very reason that we should be adding these things like uh, knowledge, self-control, uh, perseverance, and so forth to faith, is because, verse 4, We've been given exceedingly great and precious promises that, so that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. Um, we, we have received these great and precious promises that through these we might do these things. And for that reason, we are to add, and if we don't have these things, conversely, verse 9, we're being short-sighted or blind or have been forgotten. We have forgotten that we were cleansed from our past sins. Chapter 1, verse 9. Forgetting all those promises and the work of God for us. Okay. Uh, the, the point is, um, when we remember and recognize the, the great gospel, uh, salvation, that we have received. We have a, a great and glorious Savior, right? A rock of ages. Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. That double cure is the foundation for all godly changed. That Christ has received us and forgiven us, and washed us, and made us acceptable in the Beloved, that we might become children of God, and He has not only released us from the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin. Don't you remember, as, he, as is declared in His Word, 
Sin shall not have dominion over you. It shall not, for you are not under law, but under grace. That, that blindness, that hardness of heart against God, that rebellion has been broken so that you have come to Him and begun that work, that good work in Christ. And we are called now as we are abiding in Him and His Word in us to walk by that same Spirit that we would not carry out the desires of the flesh, saying yes to Him more, to walk by His Spirit more, to believe these exceedingly great and precious promises all the more, having them before our eyes, lest lest we uh, become nearsighted and blind, he says. With these great and precious promises, as we walk in them, the less room there is in our heart for other things. Um, give you a, a, a better illustration of this, I think, than just this abstract notion here. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, the saintly 19th century Scottish minister, preached a sermon, a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What is that? He says, what can't be destroyed may be dispossessed and one taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind and he goes on to explain how our love for christ and our desire to serve him are not only right but they drive out what is wrong in us and become the great engine for change so i ask what do you want? What are you desiring? What is consuming your heart? What is it that you at the moment are counting more desirable, more enticing, more worthy than Christ and his kingdom? What is it that's stealing your heart away? I ask you, hasn't he promised you something much, much, much better? Are you nearsighted? Are you blind? Have you not remembered these great and precious promises of things that are more wonderful, more to be desired? You need to learn to pursue what you really want in life. Maybe his promises need to come again to your mind and steal your heart back from whatever it's fixed on at the moment. Let his great and precious promises lead you to greater strength and spiritual self-control. Or maybe you're not a Christian at all. And you say, well, I have too many other things that have stolen my heart away. Well, C.S. Lewis wrote this. If we consider the unblushing promises of the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. You need to recognize that whatever you are desiring more than Christ at the moment is exercising 
way too much power and strength. You have not considered the, what he calls, exceedingly great and precious promises. Far, far more is being offered to you than that. Far more delight. Far more wonder. If you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you need to recognize that what you have is ADD. An affection deficit disorder. A very serious disease for which there is only one cure. You need a new affection. You need the expulsive power of a new affection. You need to want something so much greater in Christ that you can taste it. That greater affection has the expelling power to get rid of other things because of these exceedingly great and precious promises, you are going to be able to add self-control to that knowledge. You know them. Don't be short-sighted or blind. Set them before you until you desire something far better, even more than whatever is leading your heart astray. Promises. Secondly, Peter mentions power. It's where he uh, actually... Uh, uh, be, where, we, where we began the first sermon some weeks past, verse 3, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Uh, Christ doesn't give you the power to control your situations. He does give you the power to control yourself. Okay? I repeat... Christ does not give you the power to control your situations, but he does give you the power to control yourself. You don't have power to like it or control it, but you do have power that it doesn't control you. I'm reminded how in 2004, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill, legislation known as the Cheeseburger Bill. The bill was designed to protect the fast food industry from lawsuits filed by overweight customers like Caesar Barber, age 56, who filed suit against McDonald's, Wendy's, KFC, and Burger King for his two heart attacks, diabetes, and obesity. Um, why do I bring this up? Well, the point is uh, temp- temptation in the world is always near at hand, more or less, and has tremendous deceitful power. But, but Peter says, don't you remember, a greater power has been given to you divine power, that you don't have power to control the situation or even to like it, but in the Lord you have power that it doesn't control you. No temptation has seized you except such as is common to man, and God is faithful who with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear up under it. Paul says, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are having to work out your salvation, knowing that it is God who works in you. Or again, if you, by the Spirit, he says, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You, by the Spirit, putting to death. The point lying on the surface of all these things is that sin will not simply go away automatically in our lives as Christians. It's not like, oh, our flesh won't desire those things anymore. Perish the thought. Sin does not die off by itself because the Spirit now resides in us. But the opposite seems to be the case. Now the fight 
is all the hotter. And all the language, therefore, about how the Christian is to deal with sin is terrible, vigorous language. Uh, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Uh, Paul, Paul writes, we who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The most vigorous language of struggle is used. It's not going to be easy. That is why you need a power not your own. It is unto victory that we must go in the strength of the Lord. We doing it by the Spirit. If you, by the Spirit, put to, deed the, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so we can all understand that quote by John Newton I gave a few weeks ago. He says, I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let us press on, he says here. We need to recognize that the Lord is with us. His Spirit is in us. And these promises include promises of power, if we will keep under it. And I'll illustrate it at the end, but I do want to move on to the last one now. Uh, promises, power, and thirdly, plan. Plan. Uh, I, I wanted to keep a P, not the best word, but uh, P- Peter is describing something here that you see is very deliberate or intentional. He, he says here at the beginning of this list, give all diligence. Um, this uh, idea of uh, con- concentrated, uh, intentional effort. Uh, verse 10 be even more diligent. Uh, These things are not going to happen accidentally or automatically. Ed Welsh, the professor of biblical counseling at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, he wrote a journal article on self-control in which he said, the desire for self-control must be accompanied by a plan. I mean, I think that's obvious, right? And yet, I think I never do this. I rarely, rarely do it. And when I do it, it's usually much more successful. Okay, so back to his article. Um, The desire for self-control must be accompanied by a plan. If self-control demands thoughtfulness, and if it ultimately declares war on both our own flesh and Satan's temptations, there must be a strategy. If our battle was against an insignificant foe, then planning would be unnecessary. However, given that our enemy is subtle and crafty, a strategy is essential. Now, having been caught buying drugs, should we figure that the vague sense of remorse will engender abstinence? And we don't even think that next week we will feel the same drug desires and have access to the same drug users and drug dealers. Should there be no thoughtful plan, no consideration of the spiritual dominion involved, no calling out for the grace of God in Christ, no real desire to take one's soul to task, and no pleas for help and counsel from other brothers and sisters? Again, to the regeneration uh, Christian 12-step approach, right? No plan, no pleas for help from no counsel from brothers or sisters. A good indicator, he writes, of whether or not you want to grow in self-control is this. 
do you have a clear public strategy? Put it another way, he says. If anyone says, I'm really going to change this time, I don't need any help, then that person has yet to understand the biblical teaching on self-control. It is one thing to make a resolution. It is something else completely to repent, diligently seek counsel, and in concert with others, develop a plan that is concrete and Christ-centered. Didn't know I was going to be advertising for your program, did you? It, it, it works perfectly. I, I didn't even put that together, as a matter of fact, until I got up here. Uh, Jesus, again, uses these vivid figures of speech, plucking out eyes, cutting off hands, uh, and we can obviously lust with one eye as well as two. We can sin with one hand instead of two, but making the point, we must deal with things radically. Uh, we, we, we can't just think, oh, I'll just saunter in and it'll be different this time. Often things, times we have trouble saying no because we, we, we simply have found ourselves once again too near and too dear the the temptation in question, when we are called to flee idolatry, free, flee useful lust, not to even get in the situation. Like, what did you think was going to happen? Didn't you plan? Adding knowledge, excuse me, adding to knowledge self-control at least means this much, that we must choose and live based on careful deliberation. You know, and a, and a friend of mine told me once, it's always stuck with me, it's much easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. Eh. In other words, if you're just waiting to do something until you feel like it, you could be waiting a long time. You, you, you have a plan. You start working the plan. You start doing what you know you ought to be doing, and you find that your emotions will come along with you eventually, and you will start to feel what you ought to feel. Um, the Bible uses the idea of a battle. You don't win battles accidentally. You have a strategy. You have a plan. In conclusion, I would like to give you a, a practical illustration of these points that I came across by a minister named Jay Baxter Sidlow. I don't know much about him, but I liked his story when he found himself one day struggling to have some regular time for prayer. And as the account goes, he stood over his full desk and he looked at his watch and the voice of the Spirit was calling him to pray. And at the same time, another velvety little voice was telling him to, to be practical and get his letters answered. And that he ought to face up to the fact that he was not one of the spiritual sort, that only a few people were like that. And that last remark, says Baxter, hurt like a dagger blade. I couldn't bear to think it was true. Baxter looked into his heart, and he found that part of him did not want to pray. And part of him did. And the part that didn't want to pray was his emotions. And the part that did want to pray, he called his will. So Baxter described what happens then in his own words. As never before... My will and I stood face to face. I asked my will the straight question. Will, are you ready for an hour of prayer? Will answered, here I am, and I'm quite ready if you are. So Will and I linked arms and turned to go for our time of prayer.
All at once, the emotions began pulling the other way and protesting. We are not coming. I saw Will stagger a bit. So I asked, can you stick it out, Will? And Will replied, yes, if you can. So Will went, and we got down to prayer, dragging those wriggling, obstreperous emotions with us. There was a struggle all the way through. At one point, when Will and I were in the middle of an earnest intercession, I suddenly found one of these traitorous emotions had snared my imagination and had run off to the golf course. And it was all that I could do to drag the wicked rascal back. A bit later, I found another of the emotions had sneaked away with some off-guard thoughts and was in the pulpit two days ahead of schedule preaching a sermon that I hadn't even finished preparing. At the end of the hour, if you asked me, have you had a good time? I would have had to reply, no. It was a wearying wrestle with contrary emotions and a truant imagination from beginning to end. What is more, the battle with the emotions continued for between two and three weeks. And if you asked me at the end of that period, have you had a good time in your daily praying, I would have had to confess no. At times, it has seemed as though the heavens were brass, God too distant to hear. The Lord Jesus, strangely aloof, and prayer accomplished nothing. Yet something was happening. For, for one thing, Will and I really taught the emotions that we were completely independent of them. Also, one morning, about two weeks after the contest began, just when Will and I were going for another time of prayer, I overheard one of those emotions whisper to the other, oh, come on, you guys, it's no use wasting any more time resisting. They'll go just the same. And that morning, for the first time, even though the emotions were still suddenly uncooperative, they were at least quiescent, which allowed Will and me to get on with prayer undistractedly. But then, a couple of weeks later, what do you think happened? During one of our prayer times, when Will and I were no more thinking of the emotions than of the man in the moon, one of the most vigorous emotions unexpectedly sprang up and shouted, Hallelujah! At which then all the other emotions exclaimed, Amen! And for the first time, the whole of my being, intellect, will, and emotions, was united in one coordinated prayer operation all at once. God was real. Heaven was opened. The Lord Jesus was luminously present. The Holy Spirit was indeed moving through my longings. And prayer was surprisingly vital. Moreover, in that instant, there came a sudden realization that heaven had been watching and listening all the way through those days of struggle against chilling moods and mutinous emotions. Also, that I had been undergoing the necessary tutoring by my heavenly Father. End quote. Brothers, sisters in the Lord, may you likewise struggle unto victory, giving all diligence to add to your knowledge self-control, not only to the glory of God, 
but eventually to the great delight of your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how weak indeed we are as we consider these things. We have found battles lost in a minute or an hour if we are honest and not two, three, four weeks. We have need of endurance. We desire to add next week that self-control, the perseverance that we know that we are going to need if it is going to do us any good. We pray that you would bless each one of us, though, as we do desire something more in our lives, something higher and greater, something more to be desired, even than the finest gold. We pray that the great and precious promises, the mighty divine power, would give us the diligence that we need as we make our plans, that we might be participants in the divine nature and that our very emotions themselves might at last acquiesce and sing hallelujah, amen, Lord Jesus.